Welcome to the Reverberations podcast. This series is curated and hosted by me, Zara Arshad, and made possible with funding and support generously provided by the Design History Society UK. Reverberations as an initiative was originally proposed in late 2018 as an events programme, a set of in-person conversations that would seek to address marginalisation, underrepresentation, and erasure in the UK's cultural and creative sectors. This group of talks was partly driven by my own harmful experiences of the fields in which I professionally practice, specifically museums, academia and design. While the podcast that you are currently listening to, a reincarnation of the aforementioned events programme, was developed throughout 2020, a year defined by COVID-19, the murder of George Floyd, and the subsequent heightened energy of the important Black Lives Matter campaign, in addition to new surges in anti-Asian hate. As these happenings and more have been taking place around me, I have doubted the value of public discussion, querying how can we move beyond lip service and help to enact meaningful change. The exchanges that I have had mostly during lockdown with the brilliant group of individuals who feature in this series offer glimpses into the possibilities and imaginings of how such change might be achieved, such as through collectively creating new systems, building networks of care and empathy, and thinking more carefully about whose voices we choose to amplify. The works, ideas and approaches briefly encapsulated here have greatly informed my own thinking. I hope these recordings will be similarly useful for you. Organised around three key themes, institutions, divergent models, and decolonising design and culture, season one of the podcast broadly focuses on history making, particularly in relation to design history and design studies. The conversations that feature implicitly reflect on how and where our histories have conventionally been told and who gets to tell them through considering the work and experiences of BIPOC peers and colleagues who have navigated, continue to navigate, and frequently resist institutional structures and frameworks in varying ways. Season one of the Reverberations podcast was recorded remotely on Zoom as a result of the ongoing COVID-19 global pandemic. Please excuse any everyday life sounds that you might hear in the background. For this first episode of the theme, Decolonizing Design and Culture, I speak to Dana Abdullah, a designer, educator and researcher. Dana is currently Programme Director of Graphic Design at Camberwell, Chelsea and Wimbledon Colleges of Art at University of the Arts London, as well as co-founder of the group Decolonizing Design and founder of Gallimap, an independent non-profit magazine about Arab thought and culture established in 2010. So welcome, Dana. Um, Thank you so much for being here today. Thank you for having me. So I wanted to speak a bit about your work as part of Decolonizing Design. Much has happened since you founded the group, co-founded the group rather, in 2016. And I'm specifically thinking of the events of, of last year, the murder of George Floyd, the Black Lives Matters campaigns that subsequently took place. 
And I'm thinking about a very specific example that I just wanted to draw to your attention, which was Blackout Tuesday, um, which is, of course was this initiative that was encouraging the posting of black squares online. And that was both at an individual level and more of a group or organizational level. But what I found particularly striking about this was that large-scale institutions were ready to post these black squares online, but now sometime later it has become evident that at least some of these institutions are not necessarily willing to engage with or tackle systemic or institutional racism which then they themselves are often implicated in. And so with this in mind, I guess I wanted to ask you two questions, if I can split it up. First of all, have you noticed any meaningful change since founding Decolonizing Design? So whether we're speaking about your experience of the field of design within academia, perhaps even the cultural and creative sectors more broadly. And then the second question that I wanted to ask was that from your perspective, how do we ensure that we don't lose the original intention behind bottom-up or grassroots decolonizing work, which you know might be a description that I could apply to decolonizing design, if I may. How do we ensure that this work that we do doesn't become just part of these diversity quota-like checkboxes, particularly within institutions? Yeah, so I, I think that for the, the first part of your of your question, we founded Decolonizing Design in 2016. And I think when the group was first launched, it was a very different, there was a very different reaction to what we have now. And so when we when we launched in 2016, there was a lot of people who were quite supportive and very interested in what we were doing and you know, thanking us for doing this type of work and calling it out and so on. And then you had another camp that was very defensive and didn't understand what this concept was or why we needed this type of work or what we were trying to do. And you fast forward you know, 2020, 2021, and it becomes a completely different landscape where everybody is attempting to engage in this work and attempting, you, know, you have some really good stuff and you have some really kind of poor type of engagement with it. So in terms of if there's been any meaningful engagement, I think with some institutions, there has been an interesting engagement. This ties a little bit to your second question. Yeah, so to think of, you know, institutions understand equality, diversity and inclusion because they equality, diversity, inclusion, EDI is reform, whereas decolonization is a reevaluation of political, social uh, and economic structures. So it, it is a radical rethinking of, of things. It's transformative. Uh, whereas EDI is about recognition. It's about tolerance. You know, increased diversity becomes the main popular demand rather than, a, than actual rethinking, reimagining and transformation that comes with decoloniality. And so there are some institutions that have really started to think about these initiatives. Now, of course, to me, some of them do fall under this is a checkbox initiative mm. in terms of if we do this, we have decolonized our curriculum. And you see that a lot within design history. I'm speaking in design generally. I, I'm not going to talk about you know other initiatives in, in other disciplines. I think for a lot of people, they think that if they add 
a few different authors of color or from different disciplines into their reading list and they've decolonized the curriculum. And that shows a very shallow understanding of, of what the whole process is. So there has been some meaningful change in terms of institutions beginning to understand very slowly, however, their hiring practices in terms of how you interview people, how you begin to shortlist people, where you advertise, how long you advertise for, uh, who are the types of people that you want to work in your institution, because it's, it's not just diversity in terms of ethnic diversity, it's also diversity of practice, diversity of thought. Uh, those are very important things because when you bring in people who think very differently, you, you start to form a very different institution. And yeah. that is extremely important in this work. So, and then within kind of the cultural and creative sectors, I think the actions that have been made, I mean, there, there are these small actions that, you know, people will say, oh, but, but it's a good thing to have that. And yes, it is. But it, like I said, with the whole EDI thing is that just increased diversity becomes the primary demand. And once we've met that demand, and once we've met that quota, it's over. So it's like, there's, there's no, there, first of all, there's no single narrative of equality one. And we, we sort of take this checklist, this, this toolkit, this make it a strand thing and say, okay, once we've met this quota, we've set for ourselves like a five-year vision or something, we don't need to do anything else, right? If we filled 50% of our staff and those above, and if you start to look at those layers of like who's above within institutions, for example, it's not very diverse at all. And so that, that work is, is, is quite slow. But a lot of it is unfortunately checklist exercises and stays within that kind of well-meaning space, which can be very dangerous because, you know, we all know what the road of what is paved with with good intentions, you know, <laughs> the road to hell is paved with, with good intentions. And, and that is a very interesting thing to think about, like, you know, what, because these initiatives then turn this into a complete checkbox exercise, you know, right. that we see that that's how, what we do. But I have seen a lot of engagement from, you know, younger people, students, some people generally, genuinely, sorry, interested in this type of work and in, interested in educating themselves about what this means, what kind of world we could create based on what decolonization theory tells us. So in terms of how do we ensure we don't lose the original intention behind the bottom-up grassroots work that you were mentioning, does it become another diversity quota-like checkbox? Unfortunately, we are headed into that direction. How do we ensure that it's not headed into that direction? This is, it's a difficult one. I think that there needs to still be, while engaging with these initiatives that our institutions speak as an EDI, that's not going to change overnight. That's what the institution, that's what the government knows. And, and you just saw the news today, that, that whole report that came out. So we still have a long way to go. You know, we, we really do. And I think what the main thing is, is that if, how do we ensure we don't lose those intentions is that we continue. And this is, this is quite a lot of draining hard work is that we continue mm -hmm. to ruffle feathers and we continue to call it out. And that's how we ensure that we don't lose those intentions because we keep fighting back against it being turned into a checkbox exercise, right? Particularly, mm -hmm. I'm speaking very much within an academic context because that's where I work in every day. That's, that's the only kind of contribution I can put to that question, I think. And that's what I try to do every day, yeah. you know, in my, own, in my own work or in my own existence, let's say, uh, in my own presence. And, and just for me, what's important is, is how I present what decoloniality actually means to people. One of the reasons why it's becoming a diversity quota like checkbox is because people do not actually know what it means. 
Right. And of course, it means different things to different people as well. Yeah. It's a very contextually based term. But like, if somebody is told that decolonization is about updating your reading list and adding maybe Edward Said's Orientalism to it, and perhaps a few, quote, non-Western designers on it, then probably their understanding of it is just going to stay that, right? And I have met people who that's what they think decolonization actually means. Mm. Because it's very hard to condense that term into an easy to use toolkit. I think people are afraid to deal with something that provides more questions than it does answers. And that doesn't have a ready-made formula for things to happen. Like we, li- we live in a society that likes a lot of these tool- like toolkits that just make it easy for me to, I'm gonna decolonize the curriculum without touching any of the structural stuff, right? So yeah, I mean, I mean can even one simple thing with institutions, like can you actually decolonize an institution that continues to charge such fees it's not kind of abolishing all fees, but like the, the fees that you are charging, the way that the university has become structured in the past, you know, this has been ongoing for some time, but let's say really pronounced in the past 10 years. Yeah, I mean, maybe I can pick up on, you know, some of the things that you mentioned. Well, first, you very quickly referred to the report that was released very a uh, few hours ago, even, or very, very recently for listeners we're referring to the race report that suggests that UK is not deliberately rigged against ethnic minorities. Was that, was that the, the terminology that they used? It was something, some kind of sentiment like this. So with this happening on the one hand, and on the other hand, in preparing for this podcast, one of the things that you've continuously said to me, and you know that has resonated with me because I've repeated it back to you a number of times, is that you feel that you're constantly talking within an echo chamber. And so it just makes me think, can we even decolonize design studies? I'm thinking of you know design studies encapsulating practice, theory, history. And you've touched on this um, in your answer just now, but where do we go from here if we can? How do we move beyond just talking about it? You know, in, in this way that we are talking about it just now, but how do we move beyond just talking about it and prompt more meaningful change? Like what tools and networks do you think we should be building from this point on? This is an interesting question because I think there's been a lot of talking, but then actually who is doing that talking and who's actually listening? And that's something I constantly ask myself. I think that, you know, to go back to 2016 and how things were decolonizing design first launching and now where we are and everybody's interests, but actually we jumped very quickly, but how are these conversations taking place? Are they just, let's just kind of have this flurry of events. And that's to go back to the events of George Floyd's murder is that there was and I'm sure, I don't know if you've, you've dealt with this, but a lot of emails in my inbox about mm-hmm. like, could you come speak here? Could you do this? Right. Could you do that? And, and you know, yeah. there, there's, still, there's still a lot of that. There's still a lot of messages I get people asking me to do their labor and that sh- small bit of labor, which is actually, how do you educate yourself? How do you become informed and ask proper questions rather than ask me to do the work and kind of mm-hmm. piggyback on something trendy because that's what's happening so these conversations are happening really quickly about how much are we actually taking the time to think, to really consider what we mean by this term, uh, what we mean by the actions that come with it, what's our understanding of it. I think the first tool is, is to really actually sit and reflect when we're doing a lot of talking, 
are we listening? What are we developing together rather than these kind of easy to digest solutions, right? We need to come up with more radical solutions. We need to become very critically informed citizens. And, you know, there is no better time than now. I, I don't understand how any of the situation that's happened in the past year could not politicize anyone. Mm. You know, COVID, BLM, the bill, it's just a, the, the protest bill, you know, all of these things. So in terms of, of how do we look at design studies, I think the, the easiest way, and actually COVID was probably the best thing to happen, which should have, is that it's, unis had to jump very quickly to online, which was, which was a lot of work. A lot of us are very exhausted. And, and this type of life living in, t- in front of a screen is extremely exhausting. It's very draining. Is to think about what it is that we're teaching and how relevant is it to the world that we live in right now? And if you ask me, and I said this very early on from when COVID happened, I don't think what we teach is relevant to what is the contemporary world that we live in. And I've said this over and over again in a chapter I just published as well, is that we have 20th century solutions for 21st century problems. And this is what design does. So the first step is to assess actually, what are these disciplines? What are they doing for the world? How are we creating informed citizens? You know, what is a university? What is the purpose of a university now, you know, and what type of programs, courses do we want within design? You know, how do we bring these ideas forward, right? Like, how do we really reassess what we're teaching in design? You know, it's not about kind of, oh, we're going to decolonize the entire BA right away. No, you can't really do that. It's kind of a gradual, long-term process. But you can start by really critically interrogating and assessing what you're doing and how you're doing it. And I think that for me is, is the first path forward. You know, in your role as program director of graphic design at UAL, I wanted to, to ask you, how have you kind of specifically introduced some of these ideas, like the decolonizing work, kind of encouraging the next, for the lack of a, a better description, the next generation of designers to engage more with politics how have you started to be able to kind of introduce that into academic training at UAL? And how has that been received both among students and also within the staff body? Well, I've only been in this role for a year and I started the role and very quickly COVID happened. So I think that it changed very much all the plans that I had coming into the role, because obviously there's you know, you have to deal with the situation at hand and the situation at hand was how do we move online and Mm. continue to support our students and our staff throughout this entire process. I think the way that I've tried to put changes in are are very subtle. I wouldn't say that I've put in deliberate, let's decolonize the curriculum initiatives, but subtle things that are in my power. So a program director is effectively a head of graphic design. I oversee five courses. That's two MAs, two BAs, and a graduate diploma. So approximately 600 students. And your job is a lot of meetings and you're dealing with a lot of, you're dealing with with staff and you do some teaching. You know, I don't do as much teaching as I used to. And so it it does feel strange because you feel this disconnect. Mm. Uh, and then and on top of it, the disconnect of being online is, is really hard to kind of replicate that environment that you have within a classroom. But I think for me, the, the changes that I've made have been subtle, but still have really 
didn't even just say ruffled feathers, but kind of showed people that there's a different way of thinking about things. For example, how we do our hiring. You know, I'm very much a strong proponent of opening it up to international candidates. So you have to keep it advertised for a certain amount of time. How we write job descriptions, little things like that. How we, you know, how we actually staff the department is very important. Because as you know, art and design schools, a lot of them rely on adjunct, you know, hourly paid labor. So how do we provide more opportunities for people to feel more secure and be in more permanent posts? Assessing in terms of, I'm not the course leader. I mean, I I oversee the, the program, but each course has its course leader. And so giving them that independence, but consistently also talking to them about some of the stuff that is being done on the course, you know, who are the visiting lecturers, who are the speakers, what are the themes that they're looking at? And other things for me that were very important was sitting on on panels about, say, the attainment gap or decolonizing a curriculum or EDI and being very, as I said earlier, questioning this, interrogating this, speaking up, what are the initiatives that we need? And I guess in terms of how this has been received, it's, I don't really know how it's been received because I don't know what people say behind closed doors. Uh, (laughs) But Someone did give me this, which was a really interesting thing. Oh, cute. Snoopy badge. Yeah. Snoopy <laughs> badge, yeah. Yeah. I think what I've noticed is that there has been, you know, I, I definitely critically interrogate everything. And I come in with trying to give out as much ideas as I can, trying to push on things that are just kind of unnecessary or, you know, supporting staff as much as possible in terms of what they want to do in terms of of their learning. And it is very difficult because you have so many different responsibilities going and and especially in the situation now. I'm also kind of, you know, conscious of that when you have someone questioning and thinking differently, I think that begins to change that environment, whether that's positive or negative. It can never be fully positive as, as I think one thing I've learned in this year is that if you're pleasing everybody, you're not doing your job properly. And I know that what I do is I'm never going to please everybody. And, and I, and I don't need to do that. That's not what I'm out there to do. But I think it's also important that to do this type of work is to have people who support you in the decisions that you choose to make and are behind mm-hmm. you. I think that is the most, because this can be very lonely work and it can be very difficult work if you don't really have allies. Generally people are quite open two things and learning quite a lot but you you also have to you know pick your battles as well right it, there's a lot thrown at you yeah, in this role yeah. and I and I still kind of I, I do some teaching here and there which I think still is very important for me because I can bring that into the classroom I think one of the things that we did do this year was for the collaborative unit which was a, a, across the entire design school which actually was very big hit or miss between staff and students is that you have a whole design school, not really discipline specific. And it was the whole unit, sorry, the module uh, was around the actual design process and these big challenges that related to the design school themes that relate to the future world. So it was much less about the outcome, which Mm. in design is like, well, what are you doing, right? And so you're working, the tutor that you had was probably someone who was completely, had no idea about your discipline. But it was about these ideas and how you worked in groups and and what you did. And it was, I think in one way for me, that is beginning to question these disciplinary boundaries is for me a more radical approach. It's kind of one way of beginning to think about decolonizing the curriculum or you're questioning these disciplines. 
questioning what is product design, what is graphic design, what is interior design, what is textile design, what is illustration, etc. And trying to develop imagination in a world that we have very little of it right now. Mm. But you, you, you just mentioned that you said that this was hit and miss. Like, how, how do you feel that that was the case? Someone once said to me that you are very subversive, which I felt needed to be on a t-shirt. And I... <laughs> that's your next, that's your next Snoopy yeah. badge. <laughs> yeah, the, the subversive intellectual. And I never understood why people saw me as subversive because I just saw what I would say and do as common sense. And I never really thought that anything I proposed was completely radical. But then I realized that for others it was in the way that they saw it, that that was. And so I've grown to accept that, I guess. And I'm always reminded of, so I, I think what I'm reminded of is this one thing I was starting to write to kind of begin to, to think of articulating my thoughts. And it comes from the idea of being on the margins and in-betweenness and exile that's so prevalent in Edward Said's work. Mm. And to explain this feeling, like, because I always saw that my role as, as an academic, as, as an intellectual, is to challenge the status quo, to question everything, to be against this conformist thinking. And Said has this concept of the intellectual as an outsider and the conditions of exile, which I find is, is a really interesting, I, I guess this quote helps me understand my role, perhaps. So he, Said writes, it is a spirit of opposition rather than an accommodation that grips me because the romance, the interest, the challenge of intellectual life is to be found in dissent against the status quo at a time when the struggle on behalf of underrepresented and disadvantaged groups seems so unfairly weighed against them. Then it also reminds me of this other quote from his memoir, Out of Place, where he says, there were students like Dale Conley, or Gordy Robb and Fred Fisher, who seemed to have no rough edges. They offended no one. They were well-liked. They had a remarkable capacity never to say anything that might be wrong or offensive. And they gave me the impression of fitting in perfectly. In short, they were natural choices for various honorific jobs and titles. All of this had nothing to do either with their evident intelligence or with academic performance, which though above average was not distinguished. So unlike Dale Gordy or Fred, I'm not afraid to, I guess, raise questions, to confront dogma or whatever. And that's why you're called subversive. And I guess when, you know, to go back to this unit, to this, this module, why was it 50-50? I think there were many factors at play. I mean, but the main thing that I can think of, as, you know, COVID online aside, is the fact that it was so fundamentally different from what you're used to. And it was foreign. It was weird. It mm. was like, what are you asking me to do that isn't within my discipline? Why do I need to engage with this? Mm. You know, it was very different. And so for people, they didn't, like you react to it in a negative way rather than, okay, well, how do I say it? It, it, it wasn't, I didn't think it was going to go over smoothly. I don't think we as program directors, various departments in, in the school of design, four different departments put this thing together. And we didn't think it was going to go smoothly. Nothing really goes smoothly, particularly with, with COVID. But 
it was interesting to see reactions to it because it was vastly different from what you're used to. You're used to working within, I'm doing a BA in graphic design. I work in graphic design. So when you shift that, you're gonna, again, go back to the theme of this is ruffling feathers. But do you think it's, oh, sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. No, it's okay. Cause you're not, you know, Dale Gordy or Fred from, <laughs> from Saeed's memoir, right? Um, I was going to ask, do you think it's something that you would run again? I think yes, but on a different scale. Okay. You know, I think it's something that is, again, everything to me is like designs, iterative. I iterate every year what works, what doesn't. I have no issues with trying something out and then taking those learnings and what do I take from that before? Nothing is going to be perfect the first time I put it out. It's just impossible. And of if course. I thought that way, then I would never produce anything. So I see everything as an iteration. It's, it's how do I make this better? How do I develop it? I mean, there's so many different things I want to try in the classroom. How you navigate that is, is a different story. Yeah, it's really interesting. As you're speaking and describing you know, these experiences, I feel like on the one hand, I've been quite lucky in my own formal education and training in that for my undergraduate, I studied on a program that didn't distinguish between disciplines, design disciplines. And so we were actually very much encouraged to move between whatever discipline, medium, format, you know, even outside of design. So we were very much encouraged to be more fluid with that. And then for my master's, I studied specifically on what was called an Asian strand in design history. So it was a bit more research oriented. The first degree was more studio based. And it was here where I was given space to be a bit more experimental around what kind of histories I researched, where I was able to take that work, what theories we drew on. And our tutors, at least on the, that program, very much encouraged us to look outside of the Euro-American canon. And so these, you know, taking this kind of learning into my professional work and then trying to feed that back now into the current teaching that I'm doing has been a really interesting process because, you know, like you kind of saying, you didn't think yourself as subversive or as radical, and you felt that what you were saying was common sense. I'm in that same space to a degree where I've kind of come into these spaces as an hourly paid lecturer, by the way. But yeah, realizing that there is actually a Euro-American canon that is still very, you know, taught as the default. And so trying to push my students to kind of think outside of that has been a very interesting process. And of course, you know, I'm speaking about this in a current lockdown, although we're kind of coming out of it right now, but yes, teaching has taken place online. And so trying to push students to think about these things when also they don't necessarily have access to very many resources. They're very much dependent on what they can find online or what's already in the university library, which to be honest, is not great in terms of scope um, just yet. How have you kind of navigated some of those challenges? Could you elaborate on what, what challenges specifically? Well, I, I guess, um, first of all, trying to uh, push your students to think outside of the Euro-American canon. I think that is one set of challenges I'm specifically thinking of. And then maybe also in relation to teaching in relation to COVID restrictions? 
I can't really respond to the one about COVID restrictions, mainly because not in a position where I'm teaching as much as some of my colleagues are. So that, that one is, is going to be difficult for me. I think in terms of getting students to think differently, I try to really present ways to get students to expand the limits of a given enclosed system. So how do you think differently? So to, to go back to this idea you're talking about interdisciplinarity and this in, encouraging to look at other disciplines, that's always something that's been very interesting to me. I've never been able to just stick with, I mean, you can't really be a good designer if you don't understand the world because we impact the world in so many different ways. So you need to be knowledgeable in so many aspects. If you just read design books and you're basically just looking at inspiration most of the time, mm. you know? So I, I try to introduce a lot more of a research-based practice and consistently push students to ask why and look at different ways of viewing this thing. In design schools everywhere, there's, there's this sort of coveted thing, which is the idea. The first idea is always a bad idea. The second idea is, you know, we have a conversation and the third idea is a brainstorm. And so I just tell them, I was like, I want a hundred ideas. I don't care if like, you know, 99 of them are bad, but that you've actually done that work, that you've generated that work. And then you've researched it. You've researched everything behind it. I think to go back to some of the stuff you were talking about in terms of, you know, the Euro-Western canon, one way of challenging this without just looking at references, for example, is, and Mahmoud Keshevars, who's my colleague in decolonizing design, he does this and where he teaches in Sweden is he approaches teaching design history and design studies thematically rather than modernism, postmodernism, or like, you know, mm -hmm. these time periods. And that's quite a, it's a challenging thing when you say, okay, here are the themes, labor. You know, labor is huge, yeah. right? But actually when you think about it for design, that makes so much sense. And to teach history in that way is again, it's a subversive act because it's like, I, I don't know history in this way. I know it's history as like a timeline and I need to, I need to understand it as a timeline. So you're shifting their perspective of like how you begin to view design away from these figures and about key concepts that are relevant mm -hmm. to the discipline. Yeah, I mean, I think that what is very, very important for me, and I think that I've realized this throughout my teaching career is that a student is not going to come out, most students, sorry, I'm not going to come out of being taught by me once or twice throughout a three, four year degree with understanding right away what I tried to do. Some will, but some have come back to me, you know, three years down the line saying, thank you, but also mm. I can't enjoy it. I can't enjoy anything anymore because now I question everything. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you kind of slightly ruin their life. <laughs> But I, ha I have heard this from other colleagues as well. You, you have students who actually, they, be, they cause a lot of issues for you in the classroom because they don't seem to understand what they're doing. And then years later, they send you an email and saying, I'm sorry, thank you. I get mm. it now. And that's, that's great. Yeah, I suppose it's um, moving outside of the utopia, perhaps. Maybe that's not necessarily the correct word, but the safe environment of a university or, or of an academic institution and trying to work as a professional designer or as a professional, just generally speaking, and then perhaps being able to apply that, their learning in a more practical way. I can see how they might have internalized everything that they've learned from you 
and come to that realization. I feel like that certainly happened with me quite a lot as well. I think maybe students realize how much, how different they had it in university and how much more flexibility because then you end up joining this industry that you have to do things a specific way. Whereas a lot of people in university, like, I just, I just want to make design work. You know, this is your place of exploration and questioning. And, and I've said this probably a billion times for, this just feels like, again, a, a broken record, but I'm not interested in forming students for the industry. Mm. I'm interested in students who will question what the industry is and form the future industry. Because actually we have major problems with the industry, the design industry. So it's, it's not just like a factory, you know, which unfortunately is the reality of yeah. design programs now. I mean, if you look at the huge volumes of, of graduates and the variations of different programs. I also wonder where the university system, at least in the UK, you know, where students are now considered as customers, how that kind of factors in to these discussions. Like, do you have any thoughts around that? I mean, a lot of students who come in, I think, are, you know, quite rightly very stressed out about being able to pay this loan off, getting a good job, being able to kind of justify spending X amount of money on their education. That's what fees does. Fees takes away what the purpose of a university is. It makes it all about, and, and I think Henry Giroux talks about this extensively, you know, this is the neoliberal agenda of universities you don't give that time for students or, or you, don't, you don't make them critically informed citizens, you do make them consumers. And so they expect to be taught something which is a certain skill set uh, that they're job ready. Although for a designer, a lot of the skills that you learn, you learn them on the job. I mean, if you just wanna learn technical skills because design is a way of thinking, it's a way of knowing, but if you just wanna learn technical skills, there are, there is that offering. There's Shillington, you know, General Assembly, all of these, but the university is, is a different space. And I think that the fees have taken what the concept of the university is, what those three or four years that you spend there doing are, because it becomes this transaction, this service, you know, to enable, to get students to engage and gain the knowledge to adequately address inequalities, for example, if we go back mm. to the very first question, it's yeah. almost impossible and to instill that imagination into them. It's very difficult. And when you have increased student numbers and less staff, that also becomes quite difficult, you know, because everyone has a different learning style. And how are you as an educator able to assess that in the classroom? When there's more students, you become more burdened by things. And so you, you tend to have to kind of get a more homogeneous way of, of teaching and kind of a one size fits all model. And I think we're still quite blessed with that in art and design. We have the interesting studio model, which is quite different from other disciplines. But that core thinking within design and questioning what you do, we're losing that quite a lot. Dana, can I ask, have you taught outside of the UK as well? Uh, no, I was a teaching assistant when I was doing my master's in the US, but that's kind of similar to the, to the environment here. It's just a bit more expensive. Uh, I did my my PhD field work in Jordan, so I was you know a guest juror here, did a lecture here and there, but never actually as kind of a member of faculty. Okay, so I was just wondering if you had any experience or if you had kind of witnessed design programs in other contexts outside of the UK that might 
have a different approach to education. Yeah, like if, if you had kind of witnessed anything around that. Well, the context in the Arab world is quite similar, you know, since the 90s, late 80s, 90s, you've had a huge privatization of universities. So you're still paying fees, uh, more providers showing up. So for the demand of university education, I think in the case of Jordan in particular, and, and quite possibly I, this is applicable to the, the whole Arab world, is that students and academics have much less to work with facilities wise, academic freedom bureaucracy and red tape, although there's a lot of bureaucracy and red tape here. But it is kind of incredible to see how students operate with such little resources. But there's also a very different understanding of design, and I guess how design is viewed in the university, right? I mean, in, in Jordan, design is what you do if you had a low grade point average. Oh, wow. Okay. So you end up with a lot of students who don't really know what they're getting into. They need to get a university degree and they need to do this. They'll, they'll do this. They got into this, for example. And design is much more kind of lucrative because you know that it's tied to a job. So graphic design, oh, you can work in advertising, right? Uh, interior design, oh, you can decorate places. A fashion design, you end up a tailor. Uh, and product design, you don't really have that many programs in that anyway. So there's a lot of interior design and a lot of graphic design. So I think that students work in a very different context where they don't have as much access to resources and yet they're paying, they're not paying necessarily as much as here, but if you look at say how much you're making, how much their parents are making, it's, it's pretty similar. Uh, but then what are you paying for? You know, you have broken down rooms and in some places, some, some institutions are much richer than others, obviously. Some don't really have many resources for students to, to produce work. And the, the, environment that the academics have to work in and how they navigate that is also quite difficult. I'm also trying to think about like in, in Jordan, for example, the Ministry of Higher Education has a tendency and it might be here, there's a, there's a different kind of body that looks at art design education, whereas over there, there isn't that. So you're mm -hmm. getting a model, let's say, that fits for business accountancy, and that's mm -hmm. applied to design, but that doesn't necessarily work for design, but people have to accommodate that. Right. Whereas here you actually have art and design, although it's becoming less and less in, in high school, you can take that, you know, in GCSEs or an A-level, B-Tech, whatever it is. You don't really have that over there unless you went to a private school that had a proper art program and you're already at an advantage. So to wrap up the conversation, you know, you've spoken already about the need to be more imaginative, to be more engaged, um, with politics um, as designers, what would you say to your students, the next generation, if you will, that are kind of being trained in this field? Like how would you push them to think about these ideas more proactively? I usually leave students, if, I, if I'm doing a presentation about my work, I tend to leave students with certain tactics that mm. they can take with them throughout their journey whether it's you know, their university degree or, and then beyond. So tactic one is there is a gap, fill it. If you have a skill to fill that gap, do something about it. Realize you will need help. This cannot be done alone. Tactic two, take care of yourself. We often discuss communities of care, but in reality, how do we build these communities? How do we care for each other and not get burnt out? This is a priority and we need new models for this. 
Tactic three is that the revolution does not happen overnight. Often people want change now without realizing how slow of a process it is. This type of work takes time and can be draining. Tactic four is to arm yourself with critical thinking skills and be an unapologetic cultural producers. Do not be afraid to challenge your learning. Disrupt, disrupt, disrupt. Tactic five, which is what I mentioned earlier. If you're pleasing everyone, you're not doing a good job. And tactic six, accept that you will have more questions than answers. I think that's a perfect note to end on. Thank you so much, Dana, for, for your time this evening, for your contributions, your energy. Really do appreciate it. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you for listening. If you have enjoyed the episode, please subscribe, rate and review us on iTunes, Spotify, or whatever platform it is that you use to access your podcasts. This will help other listeners to find us. With special thanks to Davinia Gregory, Ellie Michaela Young and Mega Rajguru for their continued support and guidance. Jenna Alsop for editing season one of the Reverberations podcast and Claire O'Mahony, chair of the UK Design History Society for championing this work.